Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. We've been privileged to have some really intriguing female entrepreneurs in music and music technology on this podcast. This is a combination story of a performer who saw an opportunity and has now grown this by hook or by crook into a company that is using all sorts of technologies but isn't a technology company themselves. Please enjoy this conversation with Kristen Agee, who is the founder and CEO of the 411 Music Group, where they combine one-stop recordings, for uh, sync and other great adventures as well as creates music herself within her company and her stories of things that triggered change in her lives asking asking well how changes in the industry have changed opportunities for her and how actually a recent near major event is making her rethink her existing business so please enjoy this conversation and think about how you might step forward in your own careers and lives to use both new technologies, great teams, and persistence to grow a company in this changing time. Well, I mean, we're a music publisher and sync agent um, and like licensing composing team. So I think that no matter what we do, we're in the technology space because we are recording, we're using different platforms to host our music and aggregating music and delivering music through digital platforms. So um, ultimately, I would say we are in technology, but we are not inventing technology. You know, we, we would use new technology that's coming out as it comes out. Like we are looking at blockchain and we're looking at easier ways to um, account for and track royalties and pay out to our clients and composers. Um, and, and, you know, obviously on the recording side, we're looking at new technology that makes writing easier, mixing easier and, and just better sounding, creating better sounding music. So yeah, that, I think those are the aspects where we're really using technology the most. How did you get into this space? 411 is a fairly new incarnation. How, how old is it? Yeah, so I started 411 on paper in September 2012 and then launched a small indie catalog in January 2014. Um, so we've really been around since then. And I think when I launched, we had maybe 100 copyrights. And now on we, we, we do three different things. Um, we have a production music side where we rep one-stop indie artists, um, catalogs, we have a trailer music catalog and sound design and score. And then we have a more traditional publishing arm where we sign writers to publishing deals and rep bigger catalogs as a sync agent and administrator. And then we do custom music. So I would say on a whole, we now have about 80,000 copyrights that we represent. Um, so we've grown pretty substantially from when I started with like 100 <laughs> tracks yeah. in 2014. When you started papering this thing in 2012, what was your journey to get to that point and why was this your next direction? Yeah, I think the journey is 
is potentially a long story, obviously, because I started the company when I was 26. And so um, maybe starting a company at that age is young, but it took me a while to get there. My background is in music. I grew up playing classical violin in Oklahoma and then moved to a lot and other, some other instruments, but that was my main one. And I moved to Los Angeles when I was 18 and got into drums and bass and went to sound engineering school and toured a bit with different bands as a violinist and bassist. And, and then long story short, like the, the sort of turning point for me was when I was, I was sort of on this track to be being a touring bassist and was taking bass lessons from Daryl Jones of the Rolling Stones. And I kind of had this moment where I realized that the longevity in music was in copyrights and writing and ownership of assets. So I shifted gears from trying to play um, as a hired session musician or touring bassist and started writing full time. And when I started writing, I was specifically writing for film and TV, synchronization work, different publishers, working with different artists. And and then at a certain period of time, like after doing that for a couple of years, I just kind of was like, why don't I do this myself? I can just aggregate. I was already aggregating writers by by bringing in people to collaborate with, like co-writes and singers and whoever else. Um, so 411 just kind of organically grew from there. And How did you end up having Daryl Jones as your bass instructor? <laughs> so that's like kind of a great story. I bring it up because of the story, because there's such a good lesson in it, I think. I was probably 23 and I went to an Ampeg-sponsored Sam Ash event in West L.A., and I was the only girl and definitely the youngest person there. And it was just this Daryl Jones, you know, sponsored event of like, come and meet Daryl and, and, you know, listen to his tips and techniques on bass playing. So I went and I just waited in line after, <laughs> after the event and, and was like, hey, it's to, to meet him. And I was like, hey, Daryl, it's nice to meet you. I'm Kristen, I'm a violinist, but I play bass and I feel like I need to take this to the next level. And you teach bass lessons. And he was just like, um, no, I don't. But I go, okay, well, no pressure. Like if you ever decide to let me know. And I gave him my card, which was like a picture of me playing violin at the time. And he called me two weeks later and was like, okay, I'll teach you. And I found out later, you know, after a year of lessons with him, I was kind of like, why are you teaching me? And he told me it's because he had such great teachers in his life and he wanted to pass that knowledge on to somebody else so that if he's not around one day, then it'll continue. And and I thought that was such an amazing reason to, to be teaching and like it was all just about giving back for him. And I think the lesson for me was, I mean, first of all, that was like a turning point in my career, but also like that has been my philosophy for starting a business. It's just, you don't know till you try, like guaranteed no one else was about to ask him that. And I just waited in line and asked and, and it worked out. So I think you have to try and you have to put yourself out there and don't be afraid to, to just ask and, and try things. And if it doesn't work, you're in the same position as where you started. So is that what you did also when you were blossoming 411? Did you decide you're going to do it or did you actually go to peers and mentors and say, will you help teach me how to do this stuff? 
Yeah, I, I did not do that at all. I wish I did because I think I would have started, you know, five years ahead of where I did in a way, but I didn't really have any mentors on that side at all. I, I just started doing it and fumbled my way through it and figured it out. And, you know, once I, I actually got a brand and a logo and a website and some music, I started knocking on every door to pitch the music. I mean, every door with no shame. I emailed everybody. I was like, this is what we're doing. Most people did not care. They had no idea who we were. And, and I just honestly had to go to every event and, and do as many things as I could and meet as many people as possible to build this, this, this catalog and company and our client base to where it is now. And it, it was painstakingly long and, and difficult to do, but, but it happened. So it's, here we are. So is there something about the time? Is, is it that there is, this was the great or unusual time to create a new catalog? Is there something about the changes in the business that made 2014 the right time to move this out the door or for now for it to have reached the size it has? What about the music industry has been changing or innovating to make it time to have a new small, a new, no, more mid-sized catalog? I think it was kind of the worst time to start a new music library, um, except for now. I would say maybe now is the worst time to start a new co music company, just in, in a certain, like, to a certain extent. Like what we do, I think, um, would be really hard to start again now. But I think it's gotten harder and harder because the market is so saturated and it's, there are new music companies who pop up every single day. So it is such a crowded space and it's, it takes a really long time to get your bearings. Even established companies who try to come into the U.S. market, for example, have a really hard time doing that. And so I think it's actually a really difficult time. And when I did it, it was really difficult and it took longer to build than I anticipated. But um, I honestly think we built faster because I'm so like resilient and never stop. I just, I, I won't take no for an answer for the most part. And you just have to continue and, and keep going no matter what happens. Um, but, but I think, um, I think to be honest, like I wonder every day if I should have <laughs> ever started this, but, but we have grown and I'm fortunate, I think, to be in the place we are now. Um, but, but yeah, it, it takes, it takes a lot of energy and effort and perseverance to sustain something like this. So how much of it is a human relationship business versus a systems business versus a pipeline business of making sure that once you build the relationships, that there's ways to stay connected with the people who are then needing your music? Yeah, I think it's, it's honestly all of those. I mean, when I started, the reason I started was because um, I thought there was a gap in the music market for one-stop music. So I started signing one-stop indie artists and building score catalogs and sound design and trailer music and all of that because I felt like our competitors didn't have 
the the quality of music that we were producing. And because I come from the creative side, our focus was 100% on the creative. So we wanted to have better music than our competitors, which I think we accomplished that. And now the game, it's like the ante has been upped again. And now everybody is, you know, I think the quality of music in general has gotten better. Um, but that was the gap that I saw. And, and now I think it's still about having better music and systems are, is very important, actually. I've, I know companies who've built their entire business and brand off of their system because the system is better or the search engine or you know, the way that they, they deliver music, have de- music delivered to them um, is, is superior than their competitors. Um, and, and the relationships, honestly, like you have to have relationships in order to do what we do. Um, but at the end of the day, there are so many companies who have those relationships also. So what is going to give you a competitive edge over them? For us, it's having better music and, and one-stop artists they know they can clear easily. Can um, you go a little more into a little more detail? I know some people listening will say, of course I understand one-stop artists. And some people are kind of going... I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, sure. So this can get a bit complicated if you don't know the nitty gritty of licensing, music licensing, um, in which case I would recommend a book, if I may, that is called All You Need to Know About the Music Business by Donald S. Passman. That's sort of like the music publishing Bible that everyone reads before they start in this this side of the business. And it um, just got reissued in late October of 2019. Ah, so we now have the newest perfect. version of the, I think it's the 10th version or something like that. Yeah, it, it is like an evergreen <laughs> book, that one. Um, so so what when I say one stop, I mean that we control 100% of the rights for the songs that we rep. And that's a portion of the catalog. That's not the entire catalog. So we rep and control the master side and the publishing side. And if there are multiple writers on um, one piece of music, then we rep the publishing for for all of the writers and we control the master 100%. So there's none of this having to go to five different publishers and to get clearance from whoever owns the master. It's all been pre-cleared for use before you were even out pitching the song. Right, exactly. And and if we don't have music that's one stop, like we do have, um, like we rep, like F Tampa, for example, is one of our artists and he signed to us on the publishing side and has put out different releases with various labels, Sony, Spinin, and whoever else. Um, and And he works with other published writers, but I'm in touch with most of them. So if we get a call to do a license for one of his tracks, we're on like an international WhatsApp chain with the whole group. Like, hey, guys, can we clear this track for this amount? And everyone says yes. And so we clear it. And ultimately, everyone papers their side. But, you know, we get it out the door and know it's going to clear. So we try to keep the licensing. I never would have thought of WhatsApp for part of the solution set there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm on WhatsApp all day. (laughs) It's a big thing for me. Be able to have immediate communication with people to take care of things and have no lag in the system. Yeah. Has the nature of what's been coming to you needing music changed? Um. I would an say, increase in TV or an increase in games or certain types of clearances. It was, is, 
Is the volumes changing or are, are there any puzzle pieces here that are on the move? Yeah, I think um, the, the biggest change in licensing is that most licenses, especially in the U.S., for television, let's say, are cleared for all media worldwide in perpetuity. Ex-theatrical is typically what we do. And because we're in such a global market now more than ever, everyone is looking at global rights. So we have offices in the US, UK, and, and Switzerland, and are direct in all of these territories for collection and Canada. Um, so, so when we, there, every territory has a different system. So in the US, we can sort of do whatever we want. We can do direct licenses. We can collect performance income. Um, we can charge $0 or a million dollars for something. In the UK, for example, that market is more regulated and there's a, a governing body, particularly for broadcast television, um, that sets rates for your music. And you're, you're sort of in the system or you're out. And, and I think the way that all of these territories now interact, it's very apparent that we need to be able to clear globally um, because most content is getting distributed globally. So we take that into consideration when we do deals in different territories and are signing music. Um, because if we only, let's say, sign a catalog for the U.S., but we need to be able to clear them for the U.K. or Australia or Germany or whatever, then it makes our jobs a little bit harder. So I think that has become a bigger issue that is talked about quite a bit on the music licensing side. Um, as far as requests go, you know, television is still massive and it's a lot of streaming now, obviously, Amazon mm -hmm. and Netflix and Hulu and all and YouTube Red, like all the big players there are creating a ton of content. Um, so figuring out the rights and again, like, you know, where is that streaming? Is YouTube Red you know, streaming worldwide, in which case you need licenses worldwide and can you grant those licenses? It gets a bit complicated, but, um, you know, we're looking at all of that basically daily. And I have a couple nerd questions. Go on. So nerd question <laughs> one is the, okay, 80,000 tracks. I'm assuming you're not doing one gigantic, painful, uh, interwoven Excel spreadsheet set. What type of tools are you using to track everything happening on the backside? So I have an amazing team. Um, Danielle is our business affairs manager and she does all of our administration work. So she uses a, an accounting program called Music Maestro to do all of our royalty tracking and submit CWRs, which is common works, common works registrations, um, which technically they're a bit different, but every society performing rights organization worldwide accepts CWRs. Um, so she is doing our CWRs for registrations, um, using Music Maestro to account for everything. We use all sorts like QuickBooks um, and everything connects through our, our platforms for hosting music. Um, so we use a lot of different Honestly, like every single possible streaming or search engine um, platform we're, we're using. So it's kind of an extensive setup on the back end. And then sometimes it's hard to figure out. Um, I was joking recently that I was auditing our family books. 
and realizing that there are some bills that had not come in, which they had made me sit down with one of my children to ask what was happening with his life that there had bills had not come in. So sometimes looking to what you need to audit isn't looking for things that are strange, but things that are missing. How mm. do you figure out what gaps or aberrations you may need to track down in so many moving parts? How do you figure out where you need to audit? Yeah. Do you need to audit? That's a good question. We do that in a lot of different ways, actually. So um, one thing, honestly, is just our artists. Like They know when their stuff is getting used somewhere. Like Some of them have Google alerts on their names. Some of our artists find YouTube videos before we see anything. So they'll be like, hey, I saw that my music was used on this ad in South Korea. Like, and it has a hundred, <laughs> it has a hundred views. And I'm like, how did you find this? But I think they have Google alerts on their names. So honestly, just writers reaching out, seeing their music or hearing their music on something is, is one way we find out about stuff. Um, we have audio, like digital fingerprinting and, um, uh, that we, that we use in order to track our music. Um, there's like watermark and fingerprinting, which is sort of similar, but they do the same thing um, mm -hmm. in theory. So we, we track our music through fingerprints or um, watermarking, and then we track everything on YouTube. So we have a, like a, a company who collects all of our YouTube, you know, monetizes our YouTube videos, and that's a good way to check to see if your music's get unlicensed. Um, and then we also have a, another company outside of them tracking um, various sources like Competitrack, which is used for ads, YouTube. Um, we use a company called AdRev to, to track and watermark the music. Um, and then honestly, Danielle, our business affairs, she, she is our little investigator. Anytime a new writer or artist comes on board and we're doing contracts. She finds them. I swear to God, like she knows where they live. She knows their phone numbers. I think they're memorized. Like she will track them down on ASCAP or BMI or PRS or whatever society they're registered with and be like, Oh, I see that you were published by this person at this time and these songs. And is that still the case? Or you have a deal with this person. And she just knows everything that's going on. And, and that helps us honestly with potential copyright infringement issues, because if they are telling us this track is free and clear and one stop, but then they have published writers elsewhere or that music is actually signed and they forgot about it, then that keeps us from like, it's like us doing our due diligence. It keeps us from having any potential copyright issues down the line. So um, some of the conversations have been that we are at um, peak TV with something like, if you believe um, what FX Networks has calculated, something like this season, um, 520 uh, fiction shows in production. Wow. And that we evidently uh, are, again, if you believe numbers that are out there, we're having a million new tracks being uploaded into the streaming services a month. Mm -hmm. Where are we on the trajectory of your business? Is it that we are at some kind of a U.S. peak with growth to come in expansion in certain international markets? Or are you seeing more uh, competition coming from all of this and everyone fighting for a uh, growing but not as fast as it was pie? What are you seeing that you're planning around 
in having this nimble business? Yeah, honestly, like all those things really apply. Um, we are looking at international markets. International is massive. Um, and, and these digital aggregators and, and, you know, production houses and studios are looking at international, you know, like it's not just on the music side where we are focused and they are focused on the media side in Latin American markets and Asian territories. Um, and, and, different language, Spanish speaking, obviously, and is a big thing. Um, so, so we are looking at that. I think those are, and India, India is a really big um, market. I mean, massive. And I think that is really growing. So we've been paying a lot of attention to all of those, those things. Um, and so we are focused internationally. I, I think, yeah, there's probably more content now than ever. Um, and I think that's not going to change. I think that there's always going to be more content because there, I think we'll see how these streaming platforms do with like, you know, Disney launching and um, Apple and, and all of these different, you know, obviously Netflix and all the big players. We'll see how they all do and how they start competing for business. Um, but I, I think there's always going to be a ton of content. The thing that I've noticed is that licensing rates and this doesn't apply for everybody. Like if you're Beyonce, then you just have to pay Beyonce a million dollars to use her song. And that's that. But for everybody else, you kind of have to know that licensing rates have gone down because they're, most of our money is generated from brands and ads. So even when you license music on like a major network, that budget is coming from their brand partnerships that they that they air, you know, in, in the ad space. So those brand partners have to now advertise not just on network television, which is what it used to be, but on YouTube and Amazon and Hulu or wherever else they can, um, on airplanes. Like there's so many more places they now have to be, but the budgets haven't necessarily increased. So you may be have to, having to do more bulk work for, the same amount of money that you would get for one big campaign. If that makes sense. So you sense. got it. Oh, totally does. I'm just keep thinking that here is this young woman who was a violinist and bassist who started this in part for her own seeing where things were going. Are you still doing music? Um, <laughs> I, I am. I actually do... I handle all of the custom music the company does. So I oversee executive produce and score produce all the TV shows that we score, the promos that we write for, ads, whatever. Um, but that is more, I've gotten to a point where I have writing teams and I'm giving notes and we have a whole system set up where how, like how we deliver our music and how we write the music. So it's very specific, but since that's done, I'm not as hands-on with that. Um, but I actually did just finish an album randomly because um, I was feeling a bit creatively stifled and I felt like I needed to actually be in the studio doing something. So I did a collaboration with four other composers um, this year and a drum and bass DJ Kino who signed to Hospital Records in London. And we basically all came together and did this this sort of like 
like building orchestral, like minimalist score album that's called The Light and Dark London. And we recorded it at Air Studios in August with a live orchestra. And then we took the elements and deconstructed it and, and like added some crazy sound design and synth elements and reconstructed all the tracks. And that album just came out like two weeks ago. Um, Ooh, cool. Yeah. So I am doing a bit of that, but um, not as much as I would like to. Uh, that was just a particular case because um, it, it sort of came about because I was almost sort of in a plane plane crash in May. Oh my <laughs> so. gosh. So um, <laughs> what happened with that and what how did that change your viewpoint? Yeah, I mean, long story short, I was coming back from the East Coast Music Awards in Prince Edward Island in Canada, which is like far east Canada, above New York. And I flew from there to Toronto, Toronto to LA, and all of our flights were delayed all day. And so when I got to Toronto, they bumped me to the next flight. Um, so I wasn't supposed to be on that plane. And then I got on the plane at like 9 p.m., and I was sick, so I was sleeping, and we were delayed for three hours because of mechanical issues. We finally were cleared to take off, and then halfway through the flight, the plane started getting hot, and the captain came on and was like, flight attendant, please come to the flight deck. And I sat up, and I was like, oh, man, this is not good. I've, I've been on a million flights. And, and so five minutes later, the captain came on and said, like, well, folks, uh, all of our generators have failed except for one. And so we need to do an emergency landing and the closest airport is in Minneapolis. So flight attendants are going to prepare the cabin for landing. And everyone was just silent. So the flight attendants came through and, and checked every aisle to make sure it was clear. And they said, just a reminder, folks, there are two, like, there's an emergency exit in the front and one over the wings and one in the back. And when we landed. And this is why we've been telling you this on every flight. So you remember it when you yeah. actually need it. Right. It was really terrifying. And because I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, I know nothing about planes. So I was like, is this, if this generator fails, this last one, are we just going to fall out of the sky? Um, so for 25 minutes, I was kind of just preparing myself to like, maybe die. So I was just thinking like, oh, well, okay, if we, if we crash, I won't even know. I'll just die. Like, I won't know that I'm dead. So I was convincing myself that it was okay. And then, but then I was like, oh my God, I can't die. My mom won't be able to handle it. I have to live. And when we landed, they had emergency, they had closed the runway. They had emergency vehicles on every entry point to the runway. And they had chased us down the runway, like in a movie, and stopped our plane and checked it and everything was fine. Um, but it really did sort of like like change my mental like just where my mental space i think for a while and when i got home i slept for 3 days and then i woke up and i was like okay that's what this album's going to be about the light and dark of everything that happens in life so that's why we did this album and that was the premise of it and and for me like you know, thinking about potentially dying, it was, which sounds so dramatic. I can't believe I'm even talking about it, but, um, it, it, for me, it wasn't like, like you, like I didn't go enough places or do enough things. It was more like I never got to a place where I was like totally mentally like present and happy with just where I'm at when I'm there. 
um, I'm always looking to the future and this what if thing. And it's easy to just get stuck in this constant frenzy, especially with building this company and even with doing music. Like I'm always like, we need to be bigger. We need to keep growing. We need to do this. We need to be in this market instead of realizing like, okay, we've made it this far and we're still around and we're surviving as a company and, and be like proud of what we've done and then grow to the next stage. Um, and enjoy the path that we're on during growth because that's sort of all we have at this point. So it's, it's been a so, bit of a process. So given that startling lens, where do you want to grow? I mean, how do you want to both be present and growing in this changing marketplace? Are there things that you would love to see happen or that you're aiming for a future that's changing to be in a certain space? Yeah, I, I think about that a lot. And I think where we are strongest is in composing. So doing custom music and in licensing artists. Um, So we're, I think we're, we're growing into that space and, and we are growing on a global level. So um, whenever I make decisions about about the music we're signing and the territories we're in, I'm thinking about the world and like, okay, well, for example, in the UK, we could probably just have a, a sub-publisher represent our catalog, but instead we're direct there and we have an office set up. And I think like maybe we'd make more money if we did this, but we're staying independent and we're going to do this. And long-term, that's where I want to be. Um, so I think long-term on the creative side, I want to be doing more composition. I want to be working with more artists and... Um, and I like that we're an independent company. Like we're not owned by anybody. We're, it's just me. And it's just like we're a, a female owned minority company because I'm a woman, which is insane. But I think that there needs to be an alternative out there. And we are that alternative. And I'm really like proud of that. And I want to be able to sustain it just because there needs like there needs to be another option out there other than these massive companies and the majors and, you know, who, which I work with them. I love them. Don't get me wrong. It's just that I think we're different and unique and a diverse company and very hands-on with our creative and people come to us for a reason. So we've had a great conversation and we are near the end already. Already? God, I just rambled on and on. (laughs) So is there anything though you haven't had a chance to talk about that you'd want to mention as we close? Um, I think like, you know, an unpacking sort of the, this year for me and the future, um, and where I want to head and where we are now. It's, I love doing these kinds of interviews because it, it helps me actually to process it all and be like, okay, where are we at now? And like, how am I going to give advice? Like, especially if I feel creatively stifled or like, oh, we're not growing fast enough or we're not doing enough. I think it's just important to realize that we are doing so much and to take a step back and, and realize that and be appreciative and, and, and don't be afraid to just push and and get yourself out there and start like that is the biggest thing for me and I think that I just do everything like sometimes I don't even have a plan I just go do it and if I make a mistake then I own it and I learn from it and I move on and I I think like any the advice I would give to people 
would be to just not be afraid to take those risks. If anything, I wish I took bigger risks and, and I plan to hopefully in the, the coming years. And, and that's, that's really how you grow and sustain in this type of environment that we're in now. So if anyone is intrigued by this conversation, would like to reach out to you, how would you like them to reach out? Um, you can find, I mean, my information's out there, so it's, you know, you can find it. But um, if you're submitting music, there is a portal on our website for composers and for artists to submit. Um, so go to our website, 411musicgroup.com. And to submit music. And then there's some contact us information on there for licensing or info. Um, so feel free to reach out from there. And um, our production teams or licensing teams will handle everything. And if, if it requires my attention, then I, I will definitely see it. It will come to my desk. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for spending the time with us today. And thank great so to much. be following up on our conversation about drive life and building a company. So this has been great to talk. Yeah, same. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.com. .ucla.edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.